Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Just because an event becomes famous doesn't mean we know the whole story. And this particular event never would have happened if a boy named Walter Michelle hadn't seen his life completely change at the age of eight. It was when the door was locked to the school for me and I couldn't go into it uh, that, the re that the world really changed. Uh, and uh, I won't go into the details of it, but it was not a good time uh, to be a Jew in Vienna. That's Michelle in 2018, remembering how quickly his world fell apart when the Nazis rose to power. When the Anschluss occurred and the uh, Hitler was hailed and greeted as an enormous hero uh, by, by Austria and certainly in Vienna, um, the automatic reaction uh, naively uh, was to start burning all the papers uh, that one had. But what Walter Michel discovered in going through those papers was that he had had a relative who had left for America years before, which paved the way for him and his family to come here and for Michel to ultimately become one of the most famous psychologists in the world, famous particularly for an experiment that made news, proved inspirational, and stirred up controversy. The myth of the marshmallow test what a lot of people believe is that it showed that there are certain kids that are good at waiting for the second marshmallow, and those kids are going to be wildly successful. They're going to do well in their SATs. They're going to go on to be high earners. And there are some that are just not going to pass the marshmallow test, and they're basically doomed to failure in life. I'm kind of painting it with a broad brush. Author Bina Venkatraman is describing a test that became well-known for its simplicity. When Michelle was a professor at Stanford in the 1960s and 70s, he tested a number of preschoolers by offering them one marshmallow or another snack right now. But if they could hold off eating the snack for 15 minutes, they would get a double snack. So how much could little kids plan for the future and control their impulses in the present? That's what Michelle wanted to know. Initial results suggested that kids with more self-control ultimately did better as adults. And the question, as always, was why? The reality is when you look at the body of research and even what Walter Michel, before he passed away last year, found, is that this is not some innate trait. You are able to wait and you have good foresight and you can delay gratification and you'll do what's best for the future. Or you're impulsive and you're reckless and there's no hope for you. In fact, it's very dependent on environment, conditions, and culture. So, for example, some of the experiments that have followed the original marshmallow test show that it matters whether a kid trusts the person running the experiment. So if the person running the experiment first does sort of a bait and switch where they promise art supplies and then the art supplies don't arrive. The kids don't trust that they're going to get that second treat. And so they'll just indulge right away. Venka Traman is the author of The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. She was also the senior advisor for climate change innovation in the Obama White House. And her job involved a lot of trying to get people to think about tomorrow rather than just maximizing their profits today. Venka Traman looked at a bunch of studies inspired by the original marshmallow experiment, which is now about 50 years old. Those studies have shown that, first, kids are influenced by their peers. So if all the kids wearing red shirts wait for a second treat, and you're wearing a red shirt, you're more likely to wait, too. Second, 
kids are influenced a lot by the culture they grew up in, which might explain why children from Cameroon were able to wait at about double the rate of their German and American preschool counterparts. And so what this suggests is that culture can have a huge influence on whether or not we wait for things, on whether or not we think that's the right thing to do, or whether or not we feel forced to do that. Or, you know, there are many possible explanations for how that actually manifests on the ground for these kids. But what it really shows, this whole body of research around the marshmallow test, if you look more deeply at it, which I have, shows us that we are changeable. We are not fixed and locked into our traits of short-sightedness. We are actually capable of, depending on the environments and cultures we cultivate, thinking ahead. So in a world that's pretty focused on the next quarterly earnings report, the next election, returning the email that we got five minutes ago, Venka Traman wanted to understand how we change ourselves into people who can plan for the future. Where we go wrong, she says, isn't that we don't have good data. It's that we don't have good imaginations. After all, people have spent thousands of years engaged in projects they knew could not be finished in their lifetimes, from the pyramids to great cathedrals. But the dream of what those structures would be, it was enough to sustain those who designed them. The unique threats we face now happen to have caught us at a moment when instant gratification is possible much of the time. And so planning ahead is tough. Venka Traman wanted to understand the science of how our minds work and why those at every level of society have a tendency to discount risk. As good a place as any to start is with a conversation she had with a man named Jay Segarra. He was a chief of pulmonary medicine on an Air Force base in Biloxi, Mississippi. He told me his story of surviving Hurricane Katrina, which he barely did. He clung to the roof of his house in 100-mile-per-hour winds, and he wasn't sort of one of the people who couldn't afford to evacuate from Katrina, which is why I found it interesting to talk to him. Why didn't he leave? You know, why didn't he move to higher ground and, and spare himself that harrowing day spent on the roof and really the loss of a lot of objects in his life. He lost family photographs and he uh, had an heirloom cello from his father that had been built in Paris in 1890 and it was totally destroyed by, by the flood. So what he told me is that even though he had the information, he really didn't fathom the harm coming to him. He didn't really fathom that this would happen to his house, that it would be this bad. And because we're living in times of unprecedented change, whether you look at the changing climate and the sort of threats of that extreme weather events that have never been seen before, or you just think about the fact that we're living longer, right? We're living way longer than our grandparents. So we have to be able to contemplate what is currently not in our experience and what hasn't been in our past. And Jason, Sagara telling me that he just couldn't imagine it until it happened was such a striking example of that because we are all kind of only capable of imagining what we've already imagined. Or are we, right? So the question I asked in the book is, how do we get our sort of ghosts of Christmas yet to come, if you think of the Christmas Carol and Ebenezer Scrooge? Because what we really need are ways that we can project ourselves into the futures that we haven't yet lived so that we can be better at planning for unprecedented change. Like, just to sort of underscore, you know, here's somebody with resources, but they don't get out of the way of the storm. You say that's not really uncommon at all. And um, one of the, like, striking uh, facts is that even amongst people who own storm shutters, so it's not like they can't afford them, they, they have bought them. 
very few actually ever even put them on when a storm is coming. I guess it's because of what you're saying, like people can imagine the predictable in some ways maybe, but it's hard to imagine the unpredictable. Yes. And that research comes out of Wharton. It's Bob Meyer and Howard Kunrather's research that shows that people will do little more than buy bottled water when some of the most deadly storms that have ever approached are being forecast for their region. And another thing that's really interesting is the way in which we are affected by what we have recently experienced. So if you look at how people buy earthquake insurance, after there's been a sort of strong earthquake in a region, people will go and they'll buy insurance. But as the memory of that incident fades, People will stop buying it because they'll think, well, this is pointless. I keep buying this insurance and nothing's happening. Well, actually, the risk is growing over time of having a big event. So at the very moments when we most need to be protected, we're often left not at all ready. So then the question is, how do you get people to imagine the unpredictable? I think about the doctor and like, Obviously, when you enter medical school, you know it's going to be a long road, but you can kind of imagine at the end what you're going to be, a doctor. You kind of know what that looks like and the general contours of, like, you'll walk across the stage, you'll get a diploma, then you'll, you know, work in a hospital, that kind of thing. Um, but but as you say, you've got this kind of lack of imagination for unpredictable. It's hard to know if you live in a uh, on the San Andreas Fault. Is there going to be an earthquake today? Is there not? There's just no way to know that. Uh, so how do you make people better at thinking about the future? So I explored a number of ways that we can help our imaginations, one of which was a virtual reality lab I visited at Stanford where I swam in a coral reef and got to see the coral reef flash forward to a totally destroyed dead coral reef with no fish. It was pretty depressing. And that experience was one that has been studied by the researcher there, Jeremy Balenson, who found that people who swam in the reef in both scenarios, the vibrant reef of today and the one that's been destroyed by carbon dioxide emissions and warming oceans, those people were able to better retain concern about the changes that are underway to the oceans than people who just read about it or people who watched a documentary about coral reef destruction. So one of the things that he's looking at in that lab are ways that you can bring virtual reality simulations of disaster to people because, as he says, in virtual reality, disaster is free and no one gets hurt. And we know in reality, reality, disaster is highly expensive, both from a humanitarian perspective, but also a financial perspective, costing billions of dollars uh, each year in just the United States alone, these events. And at the individual level, there's also more we can do to try to inhabit futures we've never experienced when it comes to climate change. So I write about this work being done by a group called Dear Tomorrow, which invites people to write letters to their future selves or to their future children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews 50 years in the future. And the idea is that you take the perspective of someone who's important to you in the future and allows you to kind of think about and grapple with and empathize with scenarios in the future that you might be mm, more willing to sort of say, I don't think that'll happen or I don't want that to happen, so I just won't think about it. At the collective level in groups, it's really interesting because this tendency to sanitize threats of the future, disasters we don't want to see happen, is pretty common. And governments will use tools like scenario planning, for example, or businesses will use these tools. And basically, they'll drop a set of scenarios of the future and they'll say, OK, here's what could happen. And they think what they're doing is planning better for the future. 
But it turns out in a lot of these group settings, what happens is people will tend to sanitize those threats that they don't want to happen. And then they'll reinforce each other and saying, that's not likely to happen. I don't think that'll happen. We don't want that to happen. And then they'll just plan for a future that they actually want to happen. One of the stories I tell in the book is about the 1972 Munich Olympics, where the Olympic organizers actually hired a police psychologist by the name of Georg Zieber, and they invited him to create scenarios, 26 scenarios of things that could go wrong at the Olympic Games in 72. Well, one of the scenarios he came up with was that a terrorist group would climb the fence of the Olympic Village at dawn, take hostage Israeli athletes, and possibly threaten them or kill them. Now, people who know the history know that this scenario actually came to pass. It was known as Situation 21 in his scenarios. But they ignored his projection. They ignored the scenario, even though it was based on some pretty credible threats and the basic construction of the game, which was that the Palestinian athletes didn't have a nation state, so they couldn't actually send athletes to the game. So there was a sense that the Israeli athletes might be a target. And Zieber suggested that the Olympic organizers not house the athletes by nationality so they couldn't be targets, the Israeli athletes couldn't be targets, and also suggested some basic security, armed guards at the perimeter of the fence of the Olympic Village. And he was ignored. And this kind of pattern of thinking where we dismiss scenarios that we don't want to happen can often lead us to not prepare for the future. And one way that I saw that this is being addressed nowadays in the Pentagon, where they're looking at strategies and scenarios for different kinds of conflicts uh, in communities that are preparing for disaster, the Red Cross is using this technique is to use war games or sort of role play games where people have to actually invest in playing a role in making decisions in scenarios of the future. So you present them with a drought and they have to play the role of a farmer or an insurance person or a person who's trying to put food on the table. And in those scenarios where they're playing a role and it's a game, they're already being asked to suspend their disbelief because they're playing a game. And they also have to empathize with themselves in the dilemma that they're going to have to face. They can't just turn off. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Bina Venkatraman, author of The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. Um, There have also been cultures or maybe subcultures, really, where people seem to be able to see things a little bit more clearly than most people do. Um, I think about somebody like uh, Robert Schiller, the economist from Yale, who in the lead up to the 2008 housing crash kept saying, I'm telling you, you just kind of fundamentally cannot have a situation where housing prices continue to outpace inflation forever and ever. Um, Now, he said that in 2003, and then he was proven wrong because the rise in prices kept on going. He said it again in 2005. Uh, But is there anything special about those people, these kind of iconoclastic folks um, who say, I'm seeing what the reality is here, and it kind of just does not comport with this rosy future that everybody else seems to be seeing. I really looked at examples of people like this, and I'm glad you brought this up, because I wondered, are they clairvoyant? Are they the Cassandras of our society, which they often get called in the media? And what I found as a pattern with people like this who kind of see the future threat or the future opportunity that others don't see, and I'll turn to the opportunity side after we talk about the threat, is that they tend to be people who are looking beyond near-term metrics. So they're not looking at sort of the conventional measure that everyone's using to say that things are great and going well. So housing prices continue to go up and up. 
what could be wrong with that? I looked at the Indian microfinance crisis, which was sort of a parallel of our financial crisis in the U.S. after the housing bubble. And this happened in 2010, 2011. And What people were looking at as that bubble of microfinance credit built in India at the time were loan repayment rates. People were repaying their loans of these microloans to the lenders. The lenders were going public at 45 times their earnings. They were reaping massive profits. So it all looked really good. But in that situation, the sort of Cassandra of that situation guy named Daniel Rosas, who actually had been at Fannie Mae in the lead up to the housing crisis in the U.S., so he'd sort of sat in that seat in multiple contexts, he was looking at a different metric. He was looking at the number of people who should be able to borrow loans in a state or a region and the number of loans that were being sort of dumped on that region and saying that capacity is being outstripped and very similar to Robert Schiller, right? Looking at metrics beyond just the immediate metrics of success, but really these sort of measures of whether the long-term value can be sustained or potential measures of a growing bubble that's about to burst. So one of the things that I write about in the book are the ways to choose metrics that are more like milestones of what you actually want to achieve, as opposed to metrics that are just telling you what the near-term noise is. And so often we see this in corporate America, where business leaders are looking at their near-term stock price, or they're looking at the profits for the quarter. And you can be boosting those profits, which a lot of these companies are doing, boosting those earnings, you can be boosting that near-term stock price by gutting the very ability of that company to survive and thrive over the long term, by buying back shares, by taking money away from research and development or growing new markets. The very things that would help that company be successful are actually being cannibalized, let's say, for making those near-term numbers. And to look on the opportunity side of this, if you look at someone like Jeff Bezos, however you might feel about Amazon and how that company dominates the marketplace today, you have to commend the strategy there. Because what he did was from the very inception of the company in a 1997 shareholders letter is he said, we're not going to measure this company based on quarterly earnings or near-term stock price. I want you to measure my success based on growth and customer loyalty, growth and market share. These are the measures of success. So it was kind of a way of putting focus from his shareholders and investors on what he wanted to focus on, which was really this long-term value. Hmm. Finally, let's go back to your time um, in the Obama White House working on climate change. Recently, we have seen, you know, students marching in the streets is actually saying, right, to our government, to, to governments around the world, think about the future. Think about our future. Maybe you won't even be around for that future, but but think about it anyway. Um, are there ways to get governments that you've seen work, well, it could be at the city level, it could be at the state level, it could be national, um, to think about things like climate change, which are slow moving, really big. It's not an event that's happening tomorrow. Um, Are there good ways of getting them to think about that future? I think we're being given a gift by the young people who have been recently striking for the sake of climate change. More than four million people striked recently around the world in that they are helping us have some sort of anchor in our imagination to the future because the young people who are out in the streets, 16-year-olds, 20-year-olds, actually represent the future. They have the moral authority to come to us, the rest of us who are slightly older, and say, 
this is my future on the planet. And so confronted with that face to face, I think it can have a big impact on how we think about how we use our political power. And I hope to see that manifest in coming elections where adults are thinking about kids before they vote. They're thinking about the future before they vote and as they vote. In a letter that Thomas Jefferson once wrote to James Madison, he talked about how uh, resources should be passed to the future unencumbered by their predecessors. Edmund Burke, the godfather of conservatism, wrote about society as a partnership among generations. So these ideas of future generations mattering are not just sort of being invented today because of climate change. I think they really exist as part of what we aspire to in society. And so whether we will listen to these young people is the real question in my mind. And I think we see some examples with the Parkland shooting and the young people who organized around that asking their parents to make a pledge to vote for gun control. I think similar pledges and contracts are being made around climate change, where young people are asking their parents vote on this issue. I think that's where there's a lot of power for change today, because we can use what political influence we have. We can use what organizing power we have to listen to young people and to be better ancestors. Bina Venkatraman served as a senior advisor for climate change innovation in the Obama White House. She's the author of The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. Bina, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Kara. And if you want to learn more about the marshmallow test that we talked about at the beginning of this discussion, we're going to have more on our website about the nuances and controversies of that experiment, as well as other more recent experiments that were inspired by it. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.